Welcome to Minerva's Creative Conversations, a podcast show where I dig deeper into the personal journeys and professional careers of influential, successful women and how their stories can inspire others to achieve success. I'm your host, Minerva Salas, and today my special guest is Rosemary Muyeno Matos Esquire, owner of Law Office of Rosemary Muyeno Matos LLC in Hoboken, New Jersey. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Minerva. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, Rosemary, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I see that you have been working in the legal field for over 19 years. Can you tell us why you decided to become a lawyer? Sure. Um, you're right. I've been practicing a law since 2001. Um, I'm admitted to the bars in New York and New Jersey. And, you know, there was a combination of things that led me towards a legal career. Um, I pretty much wanted to be an attorney since uh, high school. I enjoy helping others. And I found that, you know, I had an aptitude for the, the type of mentality and logic skills that, that are required in the legal field. And so I found that as, as a great way for me to help my community my, and, you know, those around me. Um, you know, on top of that, you know, I feel that as Latina attorneys, we are very underrepresented in this field. And so, you know, I would like to make a difference in that area as well. That's quite interesting. And it's actually an interesting field. So, so you felt compelled to become a lawyer. Yes. And I, honestly, I think it's in my blood to want to help others. Um, I have a, come from a long line of civil servants. Um, my mother was uh, an elected councilwoman in Hoboken. Uh, I, my husband and my brother are firefighters. My sister-in-law is a Port Authority cop. And so it's very, I have a lot of cousins that are police officers and firemen. And so it's, it's very much in our nature to try to help others. And I felt this is the way that I was best suited to do so. Excellent, excellent. Now, what legal services do you specialize in to help businesses? Sure. So currently I'm, I'm a business lawyer. You know, my, my career has taken a very varied turn throughout the years. Um, I started out as an environmental associate at the first firm that I worked for. Um, and then I transitioned from environmental law to insurance law while still at the same firm. And then in 2009, when I left, I started doing more insurance work for municipalities. I, I did contract work for the New Jersey Intergovernmental Insurance Fund, which is a group of insurance a group of municipalities and governmental entities that come together and self-insure. So anytime a township is sued for a slip and fall case or you know a police liability case, um, those all come within the purview of the coverages provided by the insurance fund. And so I, I did oversight for that. Um, and then about five years ago, I, I always enjoyed contracts. Um, I've always been a transactional attorney. Litigation is not my thing. And so I saw an opportunity to get more into the business aspect of helping particularly small businesses and nonprofits. And so I pretty much started focusing all of my practice into that particular area. And so I do a lot of business law for startups small businesses. I have a council of churches and a couple of schools that I do nonprofit work for. And so, you know, my, my, I, I would consider myself to offer primarily business law services, everything from startup to, I mean, from entity selection to contracts to, to um, regulatory compliance and, and, 
and up to dissolution. So your specific niche clientele are mainly entrepreneurs, like the small businesses and the startups, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, you know, over the years, I've represented Fortune 500 companies mm -hmm. while at my law firm, but those are not the ones that I, I work with now. Is there another niche that you're looking to work with as well? Um, well, in the last couple of years, the last two or three years, I've gotten into the cannabis space. Unfortunately, it's a little dead right now. Um, but, you know, it's something that I, I have clients that are CBD businesses or hemp currently, and then others that want to get licenses. Okay. Now, is there a common theme that you see with your clients who hire you for their small business needs? Yes. And, and that is that they try to save money. And I understand as a startup money, you know, is, is hard to, you know, it's hard to raise funds or to secure your capital. And so you look to cut corners wherever you can. Unfortunately, legal is probably one of the areas that you should not cut corners on. I'd say legal and insurance before anything. Um, and so I find very often that in order to save money on an attorney, they'll use services like, you know, legal zoom or rocket, you know, the common ones that you can, you know, register with online and get a, a, a bylaws or, or an operating agreement. The problem is that they're not tailored documents. And so they're often very boilerplate. They may not have the specifics that are needed. And so they wind up either not getting the documents that they need. They do the bare minimum to register with the state. And then oftentimes when there's a problem is when they realize that they're not being adequately protected. And so at a minimum, I always tell, you know, my people that I speak with and I consult with before you do anything, when you're starting a business, even if you don't want to hire an attorney, at least consult with one to make sure that you are doing the proper things that you need to do to protect yourself and to maintain that limited liability, you know, that, that you want to protect yourself so that you're not held personally responsible for the debts of your business. I think you're absolutely right. I, people don't realize the importance of having an attorney um, or it's actually focusing also on your insurance because you can have your business, but you have to protect it. So exactly. that's really important. Um, now, interestingly enough, I looked into your uh, background and where you studied and I noticed that you attended uh, Seton Hall Law School in New Jersey, yeah. which is a great law school. And Seton Hall is actually my alma mater. So ah. yes, it is. Um, can you share some of your experiences while studying at Seton Hall Law School? Absolutely. Um, actually, I can say that, you know, law school is, is hard. It's not easy. Um, it's it's um, very stressful and, you know, but it goes by quickly. And I, I went to law school. I was, I worked full time. I could not afford to take three years off of work I, and, um, and, and just go to school. So I, were, I went to school at night, part time. It took me four years to complete my degree. I started in 97. I finished in 2001. And I, I really enjoyed going in the evening because the, the culture is so much different than the day students. There's a lot of competitiveness um, and you hear all these horror stories about people ripping pages out of books, you know, so that, you know, the other students don't get it because everything, you know, for a full time student that's fresh out of college, most of them don't have any uh, career experience. And so everything, you know, for, for them depends on their GPA. And so it's much more competitive. I found that in the evening, you know, we had an array of students somewhere, you know, I was young, I was just a year out of college. And then I had a, a 
a woman in my class that was in her 60s. And so it was a varied group. A lot of them had been out in the workforce for a long time. They had families. And so we were much, we were much closer than I think most law school students are. We didn't have that sense of competition. If somebody had an outline, they shared it with the whole class. They didn't hide it. And so um, it was very enjoyable in that respect. So you enjoy the evening classes more, obviously more than the daytime. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And, and I did okay. attend, I did take some classes during the day just because I needed them, you know, for my, um, you know, my credits. But I, I definitely found that the evening students were much more friendlier towards each other than the day students. I mean, they had, you know, day students have their friends and stuff, but right. I think they're much more relaxed because they have other things to put on their resume other than their GPA. That's true because I'm also pursuing uh, an advanced degree and I attend evenings and on the weekends and it is a different energy. And I also think a lot of times they're older, uh, the people have more responsibilities and they're more accomplished. So they don't need to prove themselves so much, I think. Exactly. That was my experience. Um, you have extensive knowledge of cannabis. How is that industry progressing forward? Well, it's a good thing we had our podcast today because for the first time in a long time, there's actually been some movement. Um, if you aren't already aware, uh, New Jersey voted by 67% yesterday on referendum to legalize recreational use. So that means adult use cannabis um, is going to be coming to New Jersey. When? I have no idea. The election just happened. But um, if, if what's happening with the medical program is any indication, then it could be quite some time before we get any regulations. There was a bill that was put up before the legislature twice. Twice it was tabled because they didn't have enough votes in the Senate to pass it. But now that, that it has passed on referendum, there is a bill out there. And so hopefully they, the legislature can come together pretty quickly to vote on that bill and then to pass regulations. Now, unfortunately, on the medical side, um, you know, New Jersey has a medical program that has grown extensively under governor, <clears throat> our current governor, Phil Murphy. And um, in, 20, in July of last year, he passed a medical expansion bill, which is the Jake Honig Act. Now, under that bill, they were supposed to put together regulations within 90 days, establish a commission, you know, a regulatory cannabis commission. Um, I believe the Senate has already named their two appointees for that commission, but the three others still have not been named. And unfortunately, as, as of the last time I heard, we still do not have regulations in place. So that's a year out. I understand COVID came and that put a wrench in things, but they, it, it seems that from the time that these bills are being passed to the, times that the, the time that the regulations are being promulgated, it's not happening quickly enough. And unfortunately, because of the lack of regulation, um, the last two times that requests for applications were put out in 2018 and 2019, the DOH has been sued. Currently, the 2019 RFA, they, they have a stay in place in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals where they cannot announce winners because a series of people that were disqualified, groups that were disqualified, sued. And so until that works its way through the courts, um, the DOH has stayed from announcing any application winners for 2019. Wow, there's been a lot of delay in that industry. It has. Meanwhile, the patient count continues to grow. Um, when when uh, Murphy took office a few years ago, it was 14,000 under, under Christie. Um, 
the current count is about 81,000. So it's grown exponentially. Now they just need to get the regulations in place. Exactly. And, and, and open up more dispensaries because the goal is to have dispensaries. Currently there's, there's been 12, uh, 12 licenses awarded, uh, seven are up and running. Um, but the goal of the medical expansion program is to have to have patient drive more than 50 miles to get their medicine. And so right now with only seven locations operational, some, some patients have to drive an hour or more to go to their dispensary. So as you see the change now in New Jersey, do you see yourself getting more involved in cannabis? I do. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough. I, I actually fell into cannabis. Um, I, it wasn't on my radar, but I happened to be approached by a group who was looking for a business attorney to prepare all of the legal documents that were required for the application. And so um, I took, at the time, the, the regulations were about 12 pages. It didn't take me long. And being that I come from a very um, regulated um, background, you know, with environmental law and, and insurance law, it was pretty easy for me to catch on, you know, on what needed to be done. And so I helped that group. And then through my work with that group, I was able to secure another group that I submitted for in 2019. And so most recently, I would say because of the lack of movement on the regulations and the application awards, um, I really have been, um, my, my clientele in that, in that arena is really mostly hemp businesses, a lot of CBD um, retailers, some manufacturers, um, and then I have one that's interested in cultivation for hemp, but they're, but they're not there yet. They're working on licensing. Now, you, you spend a lot of time in the legal field. Uh, moving into something more uh, interesting, because I think it has happened to a lot of women, especially women, let's say Latina women. Did you experience any implicit biases or favoritism in your work environment? Absolutely. Mm. Um, very much so. I was, when I... When I first graduated law school, I was offered an environmental position, I'm sorry, an associate's position at the firm that I was working at. I was an environmental paralegal. Um, I, that's how I fell into environmental law as my first practice area. And at that time in 2001, we had seven offices across the Northeast, the North, uh, I'm sorry, the East side of the US. Um, and then within a year or two, we went international. Out of 770 attorneys, I was the sole Latina in that firm for a good two years before our Florida office hired a Latina. And then by the time I left in 2009, um, there was three of us out of 700, over 770 attorneys. So the disparity is great, but it's, it's a reflection of what goes on throughout the legal community in general. Um, as you may be aware, there are Latinas currently, Latina attorneys currently represent less than 2% of all of the licensed attorneys throughout the United States. According to the Hispanic National Bar Association, I was just looking this up recently, there's, they, they have about 13,000 registered Latina lawyers when there's over 1.3 million attorneys throughout the U.S. And so we're up underrepresented on all levels, national, um, you know, statewide, you name it. Um, and, and at the same time in the corporate sector. 
And so I, you know, as, as a Latina attorney, I did find that, you know, I, what my, my skills were undervalued, um, maybe, you know, a reflection of the fact that I didn't go to, you know, an Ivy league law school. Um, but I think it had more to do with the fact that I was Latina. And so I felt, you know, that throughout the, well, actually, I know throughout the years, I was paid less um, than other attorneys that graduated in my class and, and my raises and bonuses were less. And I think it, part of it is a function that I didn't speak up perhaps as much as I should have, because at the same time, you know, being raised a Latina and, and being so underrepresented, especially in the corporate world, I sort of didn't want to rock the boat, you know? I was young and, and I felt that, you know, I was lucky to be there. Sounds terrible, but I was lucky to be there because at the time I graduated law school, more than half of my graduating class didn't even have a job, let alone were they making the salary that I was making, even though it was less than my other, my other colleagues. And so what were some ways that you handled the implicit biases? So one of the great things that happened to me at the law firm, first of all, I, I did mentoring for summer associates, um, you know, where I was often paired with a female um, law student who was interested in, in you know, becoming a, a law firm attorney. Um, I was asked to be a member of the diversity committee, <laughs> the only Latino member. And, um, and through there, you know, I felt that I, I at least had a voice, um, you know, because I was surrounded by other minorities and, you know, we were able to commiserate and, and to speak more freely than, than we necessarily did within our own practice groups. Now, looking back, would you have done things differently? Um, I say the only thing that I would have done differently is probably had more, um, more confidence in my own skills, you know, um, hindsight is 2020. Um, and so, you know, I've grown as a person, you know, as an attorney, um, I definitely have, um, have realized that I do have a skill set that's valuable. And, and that, you know, so in that respect, I say I would have probably had a little bit more confidence in myself and, and been and spoken up more um, when I knew that I was being, you know, underpaid or undervalued. I mean, I'll give you an example. I remember um, I was assigned this huge um, insurance litigation case. Um, it was a multi-billion dollar construction project that collapsed. And um, I had made, a, I, I performed some legal research and I made a recommendation. Um, the, my partner that I worked for was not able to keep on top of it. So he had another partner from another office um, oversee my work. And so that partner decided to get another female associate from our Boston office who went to Harvard and she performed an analysis of the same cases that I did. She came out on, on the other side. And so ultimately I was overruled. Um, that was the perfect example. I, I, I sort of let myself in, I let myself go into that position. I felt that I could have been more vocal because I knew I was right. Well, ultimately, um, four years later, that case, the law for our law, for the old law firm that I was at, wound up being sued for malpractice, and it, it really all boiled down to that that particular issue. I was correct. We should have filed for a declaratory judgment, and I was overruled. So it seems that you feel that you could have said more. You could have, um, you know, stated more, felt more confident, and 
you know, kind of fought more and a bit more. I think that happens a lot. I, I think we hold back yeah. and we just say, oh, we'll let it go by. But I think if we don't speak up, if we don't toot our own horn, nobody else is going to do it for us. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, it's part of the culture that we're in and it's part of the fact that we are so undervalued. Um, like I said, you know, that don't want to rock the boat mentality, you know, sort of took hold of me. But at the same time, that particular incident, you know, the one that I just described with that case and just my, my experience over the years, I've grown and now I would be more, you know, vocal. And I am more vocal than, than I was back then, way more. <laughs> <laughs> good. Very good. <laughs> now let's get to the theme of businesses now, that, since you work a lot with small businesses. I see a lot of these many businesses um, have been adversely affected by the strict lock, lockdowns. How can a business owner protect their rights to keep their business safely operating? Okay. That's actually a very good question and one that I get a lot. So... I think the mo from a legal perspective, the most important thing is, is that you adhere to all the proper guidelines, right? And so mm -hmm. you have, and, and that's on all levels. So you have your local health department that has some local guidelines that your municipality may enforce. You have the state guidelines, right? That provide for, um, you know, how many people you can have in, you know, one area, social distancing measures. And then you have the CDC guidelines. Now, they all tend to you know fall in line but there are some variances so the most important thing is that you get on board with your local state department your local health department the state health department and your um and the C cdc guidelines to make sure that you're following everything because if you're not then you open yourself up to fines um you may even get shut down um, there's a couple of businesses in new jersey that have had multiple violations since COVID began, and several of them have been padlocked out of their um, mostly restaurants. And so I, I think there might be a gym as well. And so in order to avoid that from happening, you know, it, it's important that you, you know, adhere to all the proper safety protocols. At the same time, um, morally, you have an obligation to protect, you know, your clients. And so it's not only important from a legal perspective, but from a moral perspective, you know, that you make sure that your um, whatever business you have, you're protecting your not only yourself, but your clients, you know, to make sure that you're not inadvertently uh, spreading the disease. Um, on top of that, I would say, you know, um, make sure that, you know, you are following if, if there's shutdowns you know i don't know if there's going to be any further shutdowns I, it appears that we currently have a spike again in new jersey but if there are shutdowns make sure that you shut down when you're supposed to it's very difficult i know you know um as a small, small business owner myself um you know to to when you rely on that income not to have it um at the same time you know we have to get over this hump and so i just don't see any other way other than to at least follow what what the, the state is telling us to do and your local municipalities. Um, and then, you know, tap into your insurance, you know, see what kind of coverage you can get and, you know, look into small business loans. They're available. A lot of, um, a, a lot of um, chambers will help you, local chambers, um, county or, or statewide. And, um, and then, you know, just follow Follow the news and see what's happening. There's supposed to be another stimulus package coming out with more um, loans and aid. So something to look out for. Well, it's very promising then. Looks sounds very promising. 
Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that it wasn't passed before the election, but there is a package, a stimulus package that's on, on the table in Congress. So hopefully once this election voting, mm-hmm. this nail biting election that I've been following all day um, is, is determined, <laughs> is determined, then, right. you know, we'll hear more about it. Right. And you are an expert in legal business formation. What expertise can you offer a potential business owner interested to open their own business? Sure. So first and foremost, um, which is one of my recurring problems that I see, consult a lawyer before you start registering your business and and filing registrations with the state. Um, And and the reason I say it is, you know, I'll give you an example in the cannabis um, industry. In the cannabis industry, because cannabis is still illegal on a federal level, you have to have special banking, um, your insurance premiums are higher, you know, the, you name it. it to rent a, a space, it, it you typically costs more because of the risks involved to the landowners. And so if you put on your business registration that you are going to open up a marijuana dispensary, you're already subjecting yourself to a lot of extra fees in banking, extra insurance, higher insurance premiums, higher rent, and and you may not be plant touching for quite some time because you cannot sell marijuana, whether it's medical or well, right now you can't sell recreational at all, but medical without a license. And so it could be years before you get a license. So you have to be smart about this. When you do get a license, then obviously you need to report that to the banking institutions, to your insurance company, so that you have proper insurance coverage, you know, to your landlord in case your lease has a, has a provision that prohibits you from doing that. Um, but until you get to that point, you're needlessly, you know, incurring fees and expenses that you don't need to. So, you know, that's one common mistake that I've had people that did not consult with an attorney first do, and then we had to go and amend their registrations. You know, the other thing is not having proper contracts. Uh, you know, it's a common, common situation that I, I have all the time. And unfortunately, what happens is when people cut corners on legal in order to save money, it winds up costing them. Yeah, they save some money in the beginning, but it winds up costing them more later. And that's what they don't seem to understand. And it's something that happens all the time. I usually have people come to me after they've had a fight with their business partner. And then I ask them, well, where's your, if they're an LLC, where's your operating agreement? If they're a, you know, a corporation, where's your bylaws and your shareholders agreement? And they don't have these documents because it was their best friend from, you know, junior high school or their, their brother-in-law or, you know, just, you know, their pastor, you name it. I've, I've seen and heard it all. And so what happens is, and I tell them this, besides the fact that you are not following what the, what's called the corporate formalities to, in order to get your limited liability protection, because you're required to have these documents in place, um, you're also at a disadvantage now because the best time to negotiate is when everyone is friends and everyone loves each other and you know everything is great. But once there's a problem, now it becomes so much more difficult to try to come to a consensus on these terms that could have been easily negotiated at the beginning. And a lot of times it's because, oh, that's my, you know, my brother-in-law, I didn't feel right asking him, but it's, it's, it's necessary. First of all, it's required under the law, but more importantly, it's necessary. So when you have these situations, 
everybody knows what the next step is, you know? And so you know what they're obligated to do, you know what you're obligated to do. And there's less misunderstanding when everything is spelled out, believe it or not. That's why when I, when I have clients that get these boilerplate documents on these, you know, websites, I tell them this, this is so generic. It's still, it's like, it's, a, it's as if you didn't have anything because it doesn't say, okay, well, what happens if this happens? Or what are we going to do if this happens? How many votes do we need to bring in another partner? You know, those are the little nuances that make a difference. And I think that when everyone knows from the beginning, what's going to happen, it's a lot easier than, than to try to figure it out after the fact. Um, yeah. It's no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's important to have those preventive measures. Don't wait to their, when there's a problem. Oh, now I need an attorney. You're absolutely right about that. So the other thing I would also say is I have a lot of clients that come to me and they have mm -hmm. either, you know, someone has not paid them. And so they have either no contract or a contract that wasn't signed, which is as you might as well not have had a contract. Um, or they, you know, the, the, the scope of the original contract changed and, you know, the price went up, but they never got the, the client to sign off on it. it. Or worse yet, they have these boilerplate contracts that don't include provisions like indemnifications, um, you know, waivers. Uh, um, a, a, another key one is attorney's fees. A lot of people don't know this, but you're not automatically entitled to attorney's fees. You're only entitled to attorney's fees if you sue and win. Number one, if it's allowed by statute. The other way is if it's in a contract. So if you don't have that in your contract and now you have to sue someone, you could spend thousands of dollars suing someone to get a couple of thousand out of them. And then you have to pay an attorney. So it's not even worth it. And a lot of times I have to tell them, you know what, you, you, if you wait, I weigh the risk you know, with the amount of money that you're looking to spend, you're probably just going to break even. So just let it go. And it's so unnecessary because if they just had the proper contracts from the beginning, then, you know, they could have recovered their attorney's fees. That would have been one less burden for them to consider. And, you know, they, they would have had a better chance of winning because everything is stipulated in the contract, all the terms, you know, what's expected of, of the business, what's expected of the client, um, you know, and, and, it, and it makes things a lot easier again when people understand you know what the parameters are uh, one other thing that i would say is um getting certifications if you qualify um you know a lot of small businesses do not they think you know it's like a wmb or mb or vb you know in in new jersey they have veterans um uh, uh certifications but you know if you are a minority owned business or women you know 51 percent or more women or veteran owned um, take, spend the hundred dollars to get the certification, you know, with the government, you know, typically governments are the ones that really require it, but some big companies, you know, have to meet, you know, affirmative action goals. And so they would only hire, you know, small businesses that have those certifications. So take the time to get the certification, spend the hundred dollars, and it could open up other opportunities. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. So looking for new opportunities. So I believe that's also very important to get those certifications and a lot of businesses don't do it. And I think it's, uh, it can really open more new contracts and it's not just government. Like you just said, there's a lot of companies that have to deliver up to, you know, the affirmative actions. Now we've, we've been talking about the importance of having an attorney before you start a business. What legal advice can then, can you give someone to help them seek the right lawyer that will help 
and serve in their best interest? Yes, good question. So first and foremost is you have to look for a lawyer that specializes and has experience in what you need them to do. And I say this all, all the time because people think that if you're a lawyer, you can do any type of law. Yes, you can. You know, you have the skills. What, what law school teaches you is the skills to learn the law. So yes, you have the skills to learn the law. But if you're learning the law for the first time, you're, you're not as on top of it, all of that you need to be as, as someone who does this day in and day out. So I tell people all the time, if you wouldn't go to a dentist for brain surgery, you shouldn't go to a, uh, um, you know, an insurance lawyer for uh, a divorce, you know, you, you need to find a family attorney, you know, a family attorney that an attorney that practices family law, so that that you that you're comfort that you're comfortable knowing that they have the expertise in that area. Um, the other thing, you know, that I, I also say is don't cut corners. So you know, look for attorneys. While you know you do want to be cost effective, you should always reach out to a couple of attorneys. You know, check out if they have, you know, rec reviews or recommendations, you know, from other clients. That's always a good source of information, you know, a good validation. But, you know, get on the phone with the attorney, get a feel for them, because a lot of it is personality, too. You know, um, if, if, you, if you guys are going to butt heads, the relationship's never going to work. And so, you know, you have to have a good blend of, um, you know, an attorney that you can talk to freely, um, but whose advice, you know, you you. You, you are comfortable taking, um, but who's not, you know, superimposing or, you know, it has to be a give and take relationship, you know? And so like with my clients, I find that I'm very honest and, you know, upfront about, you know, what, what my, um, you know, take is on whatever their, their issue is. Um, but I listen to them because a lot of times, you know, clients have their set ways, but if it's not going to work, I'm very clear that that's just not going to work, you know, and, and, you know, some of them appreciate it, some of them don't. Um, but, you know, it's like I said, it's a give and take and just learning, you know, how to, how to navigate through dealing with different types of personalities. So you want to find a lawyer that specializes in what you're seeking. Yep. And also that you have a personality, you can build a personality with them. You can actually, it's almost like you a friend. A relationship. Gonna, yes. You, right. you, you have to have okay. that, that, that balance, you know, someone that you can mm -hmm. talk to. Um, True. But, you know, at the same, cause I, I, I mean, I've had clients that, you know, have had other attorneys where they weren't even giving them all of the information that they had because they just didn't feel comfortable. And that's a big problem. You know, I mean, you know, not, giving your attorney all of the information could lead to a lot of mistakes, you know? And so it's important that you have that rapport so that, you know, you, you're both comfortable, you know, I, I'm comf the attorney's comfortable giving the advice and the client is comfortable giving the information. That's true, very true. Well, Rosemary, I wanna thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I truly appreciate the time you have taken to do the interview and to offer excellent business and legal advice for small businesses. Thank you so much, Minerva. It was, it was great. I loved it. Thank you. Well, please subscribe to our podcast to learn more about these inspirational stories. I am Minerva Salas, and I will see you next time.